grab a seat. Okay. So, I'm not going to lie. I'm, like, super excited about the message tonight. I don't know why. Maybe it's because, like, I feel like I haven't preached to you guys, like, a, like a sermon sermon in a long time. Because um, last week was a movie. Week before that, I was on vacation. Week before that was, like, it's kind of like a sermon, but not really. I didn't have, you know, like, notes or, or, or like, a whole lot of notes or anything. So, like, this is um, really kind of like the first sermon that I've preached in a little while. So, um, I'm really excited about it. So, hey, before we get started, uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm numero uno. Okay, Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, and while you are turning there, I'm just going to pray for us real quick. So, Father, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for who you are. And God, I ask that as we uh, approach your word tonight, that Father, that you would just, um, that Father, that you would speak through your word. God, we know that your word says that we'll accomplish that which you have set forth to do. And Father, we ask that your word will accomplish your will in our hearts and in our lives tonight. God, we thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be tonight. And if I was to ask you a question, if I was to say, you know, when we consider the Christian life, and I was to ask you what would be like, if I was to ask you what is the defining characteristic of a Christian, you know, what would you say? Right? Don't, don't shout it out, but just I want you to kind of think about that. Like, if I was to ask you what is the defining trait, the defining characteristic that, like, that just marks a Christian, that sets a Christian apart from the rest of the world, what would you say that it is? Some of you would probably, you know, think you know, of John 13, 35, when Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So you probably shout it, you'd be like, hey, love, it's love. Love is what is the defining characteristic of a Christian. Perhaps others of you would think of scriptures such as John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, or John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And maybe some of you would say it's obedience, right? That obedience to the things of God, that is the defining characteristic, the defining trait of a Christian. Or maybe you would go down the list of, uh, or of other characteristics. Perhaps you think of Galatians 5, and you think of the fruit of the Spirit, and you start to just rattle them off, right? And, and, you know, and here's the thing. Like, all of those would be right. All of those would be true things. Those are all traits that, are def- that define a Christian, that are all things that Christians have. Those are all things that should mark a Christian. However, I think that there is one predominant trait that, all, that, that those who have been born again have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that all Christians possess, that fuels all the other traits that we have that we just talked about. And that's what we're going to look at today is what is the defining characteristic of a Christian? And, and how do we understand what that characteristic, what that trait is? And in Psalm 1, we see, we see this. So in the first Psalm, the author very clearly lays out the key to this, the key characteristic of a righteous man and of a wicked man, okay? Those who are righteous versus those who are wicked. And other than the obvious of being saved, other than the obvious of one is saved, one's not, one loves Jesus, one doesn't, okay? What is the outward evidence that truly differentiates a Christian from a non-Christian? What is the outward evidence that truly differentiates a Christian from a non-Christian? I'll tell you, it's not how much you pray, Because Muslims pray five times a day. 
it's not your church attendance. Because I think the devil and his demons have a better church attendance than most Christians. It's not how many scriptures you could quote, because we see in scripture, what does Satan do? He quotes scripture at Jesus in Matthew 4, trying to tempt him. What is it that defines you? What is it that, as a Christian, should be the one thing that sets you apart from the rest of the world? Tonight, in Psalm 1, we eva- we're going to evaluate and we're going to look at what this characteristic is. The first point we're going to look at is it's a life of joy. A life of joy. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and kind of break it down a little bit by little. So Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The first thing we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to talk about what is this defining characteristic of a Christian? What is a Christian life, what should a Christian life look like? It is this, it is a life of joy. Life of joy. The very first thing that we see here is blessed is the man. Now, the Hebrew word for man here could also mean man or woman. So blessed is the man or blessed is the woman. Blessed is the person. Right, so blessed is the man. Now, here's the thing. Typically when we read this psalm, I don't know about you, uh, if you've ever read this psalm before. I know for me this is kind of something that I've done in the past. Is when we read this psalm, we almost automatically jump to what the righteous person does. Right? Right, blessed is the man that does this, that doesn't do this, right? That, so we just kind of, I know for me, it's all, you automatically jump to what the person does. Well, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't do this, but he does do this. And that's great, but we forget to address not necessarily what he does, but who he is and what he is. This is a man that is blessed. Blessed is the man. Now, often when we think about blessed, when we think about blessing or, 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 or being blessed, what do we typically think about? We think about possessions, right? Typically, we like to think about, hey, like we're blessed to be in, we think of, you know, we're blessed to be in a room with air conditioning. We're blessed to be, you know, have nice clothes or we're blessed to have cars that we rev in the parking lot, Right? You know, we're blessed to have these things. And here's the thing, like, that's not a bad thing, right? That, that's not bad to say, like, yeah, I am blessed with these things. Like, for me, I'm blessed with a wonderful wife. I'm blessed with, a, you know, a wonderful baby that will be here in, like, two and a half months, which is super exciting. And, and I'm blessed, honestly, I'm blessed to be your pastor. I, I love the opportunity that I have every single week to be able to not only share from the stage, but honestly, my favorite part of the week is talking to you at Chick-fil-A afterwards. That's literally, like, my favorite part of the week, Right? Like, like that, I, I feel old, like just totally blessed for that. But here's the thing. That is not what the word blessed here is talking about. It's not talking about somebody who's fortunate. The word blessed here is actually the Hebrew word for esher, which carries the idea of happiness and contentment. It's the same usage of the word when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Ultimately, the word blessed here, literally the word blessed means supremely happy and fulfilled. 
supremely happy and fulfilled. So to answer the question that I opened with, what is the defining characteristic of the Christian life? It is this. It is joy and fulfillment. That should be the characteristic that defines your life as a Christian, is joy and fulfillment. Now, we make a lot about other characteristics. We make a lot about obedience, which is very important. Very important. We make a lot about love, which is also very important. And I'm not minimizing those at all, but the characteristic, according to Psalm, what we see here, that defines the righteous person, defines a person who is a Christian, is joy and fulfillment. Let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. Would you say that a defining characteristic of your life is joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment? Would you honestly be able to say that when people look at your life, one of the first things that they would say is that you're a joyful and fulfilled person? If people were to come in here on a Tuesday night, having never met you, never met any of us, or to come on a Sunday morning, would they walk away saying that those people just, man, they're they're just joyful people? Because I'll be real with you. I think some of the most miserable people I know are Christians. And why is that, though? Why is it that the defining characteristic of a Christian should be joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment, happiness, Nehemiah 8.10, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I need you to hang with me because we're going to kind of like do a little bit of like biblical gymnastics tonight. We're going to kind of hop from one place and we're going to kind of, you know, read and understand a passage. Then we're going to jump back to another place so that we can have a full understanding of what we're talking about. But that verse, when you hear that verse, Nehemiah 8.10, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Most likely that's something that you've probably heard before. If you've been in church for five minutes, you've probably heard, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Or if you're struggling, someone would be like, don't worry, brother, or don't worry, sister. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you were here Sunday, we literally sang a song. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We see, you know, we, we see here this all the time. However, often what happens is that we hear something so many times. We hear these biblical truths, these biblical promises in Scripture. And what happens is we hear them so frequently that they almost just become cliche. And rather than promises that we cling to, they almost just become like phrases that are just kind of devoid of any power. Or what happens is we say them all the time, but we really don't know what they mean. And I would say that, like, for almost, e- I would say every single person in this room has something that they have said or heard that you just kind of say it, but you have no idea what it means. No idea what it means. I'll give you one. All right? Bless your heart. Right? Like, I know what it means, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I know what it means. It means, like, yo, you got some problems. That's what it means. But, like, I don't know, like, what that's really supposed to mean. Like, 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 bless your heart, but, like, nothing else about you, just your heart. Right? I don't know. But there's these phrases that we hear, and I think that one of them is the joy of the Lord is our strength. We say all these things so frequently, or we say these things without understanding what they mean, that they really, even though they're incredible promises of Scripture, they almost really, they mean nothing to us. They're just empty phrases or wishful thinking. When Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, what does he mean? What does he mean? 
You see, this, ve- this is very important for you and I to understand the rest of Psalm 1, and it's important for you and I to understand when it comes to our walk with Christ. What does it mean that the joy of the Lord is our strength? What does it mean that as Christians, our life should be defined and should be marked by joy and fulfillment and happiness? John 10.10, what does Jesus say? He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. Not that you could come and not that Jesus didn't come so that we could be miserable. He came that we could be joyful and fulfilled. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. What does it mean when Nehemiah is saying the joy of the Lord is your strength? Strength to do what? All right, let me give you a little bit of context. In the book of Nehemiah, all right, you have exiles who had returned from Babylon. This really, this story kind of really starts in the book prior to this, which is the book of Ezra. And in the Hebrew Bible, just, just Bible trivia for you, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. Okay, they're not two separate books. So when people say that the Christian Old Testament has added more books, it hasn't added more books. It's just taken books that were one and split them into two. That's all it's done. Okay, so Ezra and Nehemiah in the, in the Jewish Bible are one book, but for uh, for us, they're split into two different. They're split into two different books. Ultimately, you have exiles who have returned from Babylon. If you remember your Old Testament. Right, you may remember this, that after many years of following God, Israel ultimately begins to stray away from God. Right, Israel begins to stray away from God, and they ultimately do this because they have ungodly kings. They have wicked kings that lead them astray. And not only are they straying from God, they begin to rebel harshly against God. They are worshiping idols, and they're, they're, they're living lives that are to- in total open rebellion to God. So after years and years and years of warning the people and calling the people to repentance, which he did through prophets, right? So if you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all of these prophets, what are they doing? They're, they're telling the people to repent of their sins, to stop, or judgment is coming. After years and years of this, ultimately, God sends judgment on Israel. Sends judgment on Israel. Well, what is this judgment? I'm so glad you asked. The judgment is the Babylonians come and they conquer Israel. Right? The Babylon comes and conquers Israel and takes all of them into captivity into Babylon. This isn't fairy tale. This is history. This is historical accounts. That Babylon came, conquered Israel, took them into captivity into Babylon... Israel loses their entire homeland. They lose the temple. They lose Jerusalem. They lose their homes. They lose everything that makes them distinct. And for 70 years, an entire generation is indoctrinated into the Babylonian lifestyle. They have, and they are living as exiles in a land that is not their own. Many of them are taken into the king's court, and they have their names changed. Daniel has his name changed, I believe, to Belshazzar. Bel- Belshazzar or something like that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is a Babylonian name that they, they had their names changed from their Hebrew names. Right? They, they, are, they have been indoctrinated. They have lost their home. And after these 70 years, Ezra is allowed to return to Jerusalem with some of the exiles so that they may rebuild the temple. They go back early, they can rebuild the temple of God, and there's a lot of hang-ups and obstacles that they go through. But ultimately, the temple is rebuilt, and the people begin to worship God again in the temple in Jerusalem. Yoo-hoo, happy day, right? 
awesome, awesome stuff. Then, after a little bit of more time, Nehemiah is commissioned by the king to return to a diff- by a different king to return to Jerusalem with the remaining exiles, and now they will rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. They'll rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So most of these exiles that are returning to Jerusalem had never seen Jerusalem before. I want you to understand that. I mean, 70 years. Most of these people were born in Babylon. So while they're returning home, they're returning to a place that they've really never been. And for those who had been there before, they were really, really old at this point. They're returning back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the walls. They're trying to kind of get back to a little bit of things that are necessary. They're trying to get back to what life was like. They're trying to get back to what was it like to worship God back in the day. So when the wall is complete, the people ask Ezra to read to them the law of Moses. They say, read to us the law of Moses. Now, when it says the law of Moses, what would be just Bible trivia? What is the law of Moses? Huh? Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I I did that out of order, but it's the first five books of of the Bible, right? The first five books of the Old Testament, that is the law of Moses. So literally what happens is all day they all gather, the entire assembly gathers in front of one of the gates of Jerusalem, and Ezra reads to them the first five books of the Old Testament. He reads to them the law, and not only reads it to them, he teaches them what it means. These are people who have probably never even heard this before. He teaches them from the word of God. Now, Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 9, says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, The day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, here's the question. Why did the people begin to weep when they heard God's word? Right? I mean, it's supposed to be a happy occasion. This is supposed to be like, hey, like, you know, we're back. You know, guess who's back? It's us. We're like, let's, let's celebrate. Let's, let's worship in the temple. And they hear from the word of God. And the first thing they do is weep. The question is, that, is why? Why do they weep at the hearing of God's word and the teaching of his law? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because here's the deal. The reason they were weeping is because the unaltered, that's a big thing, unaltered truth of the word of God was being preached to them, and it was correcting them, and it was reproofing them, and for the first time, they were made aware of how they had sinned against God. So they weep. In response to hearing the truth of God's word, they weep. So let's break this down a little bit, right? They went to God's word, and through it came an awareness of who God is and who they are. And through that, through hearing and understanding God's word, they were aware of their sinfulness and his holiness, and it led them to weep. When faced with the reality that God is holy and just and righteous and their sinfulness and how they had rebelled against God, all they could do was just be sorrowful. Now you're probably thinking, Mike, I thought you said that we should be joyful. What are you talking about this for? 
You're right, we should be joyful, but let me be clear. Remorse and sorrow over sin is necessary in the life of a Christian. But that sorrow is always overshadowed by joy because we know what God has done for us. You with me? We are always brokenhearted and sorrowful when we sin against God. However, that sorrow and that brokenheartedness is short-lived because it's overcome by joy when we're reminded of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Because the people are weeping, Nehemiah will then go on to say in verse 10, what does he say? Do not mourn, do not weep, do not be, excuse me, do not be sorrowful. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And why could he say this? Because God was doing a great work in Israel. I mean, he's restoring them back. He is showing his faithfulness to them. He's drawing people to himself. He's showing himself faithful. And while it was right for them to be sorrowful over their sin, that sorrow is quickly supplanted by the joy that God is good, God is faithful, and God is loving, and he is doing a great work amongst them. You with me? Please notice this. Please, please, please notice this. Like, like, take a mental capture of what I'm about to say to you. Israel was disobedient and they were rebellious. But Nehemiah tells them to be joyful. Why? Because they are not joyful because they had been obedient. Rather, the strength to be obedient to God comes from the fact that they are joyful in him. You with me? They're not joyful because they were obedient. They are able to be obedient because they have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. What is it our strength to do? The the joy of the Lord is our strength to endure during trial and to obey no matter the circumstance. Now, let's go back to Psalm 1. Let's go back to Psalm 1. All right, now that we've established this, we've, un- we've established this idea that joy is the fuel that leads our obedience, okay? Let's look back at Psalm 1 and let's look at the passage again. Blessed is the man. What, what does blessed mean? Happy, fulfilled, content, satisfied. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, we can spend a lot of time diving deeper into this meaning in just this verse. You can whole, have a whole sermon on just that one verse. Probably do a, you could probably do a, a small series on that one verse. We don't have a whole, but we don't have a ton of time. There's a lot of good stuff you can pull out of this, but for the sake of time, we're not going to do all of that tonight. But I want you to see something. What does the blessed or what does the joyful man do? He lives a life that glorifies God. That's what he does. The joyful man or the joyful woman, the joyful Christian lives a life that glorifies God. And what does that look like? One, he doesn't surround himself with ungodly counsel or advice. He doesn't walk in a lifestyle of continual sin. He doesn't identify proudly with his sin. Notice the progression of this man, right? And there's three separate progressions here. One is there's walking, standing, and then sitting. There's counsel, there's way, and then there's seat. Then there's wicked, there's sinners, and then there's scoffers, right? There's walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. 
And we need to be aware of this natural progression because this progression is the natural progression of sin in everyone's heart. That apart from the grace of Jesus, this is where we naturally will end up. Walking, what does this mean? Walking, they're, they're, it's walking around, okay, walking in the, uh, in the counsel of the wicked. What is counsel? Counsel is advice. I'm surrounding myself with ungodly advice. Wicked, what does wicked mean? Wicked is a general term for not godly. So I am making a habit of surrounding myself with ungodly advice. Now, the second thing is now thou, this, this is standing in the way of sinners. Standing, okay, I'm no longer making progress. Now I'm just standing. And now this is no longer advice. When it talks about the way, it's, so this is now a lifestyle that I have engaged in. Right? A, a way. I am, I am now living this way. I am now acting this out. So we've moved past advice. We surround ourselves with ungodly advice. We will eventually find ourselves standing in a lifestyle that we should not be standing in. Not simply just a general wickedness, but now sinners, when we talk about sin, this is, this is now direct disobedience to the commands of God. And if we stay there long enough, what happens is now no longer are we standing. We now have sat down in a seat. Now, oftentimes, in a, the seat throughout Scripture is really, it it's, it's associates with a title or a position. What's an example of this? Jesus. When Jesus ascended to the Father, where did he go? He what? Sat down at the right hand of the Father. So a seat, uh, also Lot. When, he is in, when he, we see Lot in Sodom, where is he? He is seated in the gate of the city, which is associated with a title. What is this person doing? Now, we're no longer just taking ungodly advice. We're no longer just living a lifestyle that is sinful. Now, we have fully identified with our sinful lifestyle, and we do so proudly. Here's the deal, guys. This is the natural progression of sin in everyone's heart. And apart from the grace of Jesus, this is where we go. But the Christian, the righteous man or the righteous woman does not do this. Why? Well, I ask you this. Is the joyful or the happy, is, is this person in Psalm 1, is he joyful or happy because he obeys? Or does he obey because he is joyful? I'll put it another way. What is it that keeps the righteous man from doing these things? What is it, what keeps the Christian away from sin? It is their joy in Christ. It is their joy in Christ. Just like the Israelites got it backwards in Nehemiah's day, we get it backwards in our day. You see, many of us find our joy in the fact that we are obedient. You with me? We find our joy in the fact that I haven't sinned in this many minutes. And that's where we find our joy in, rather than this. When we have our joy in who God is and what he has done, man, that joy fuels us to be obedient. It fuels us to be obedient. And we can't get this confused. We can't get this mixed up. What's the problem with this? One, if your joy depends on how obedient you are, you will be unbearably self-righteous. You'll be unbearably self-righteous. Think about it. To say that I can have an everlasting joy in God because of how well I have obeyed him. See how self-righteous that sounds? I just want to like smack someone that would say that. I'm so joyful because I'm so obedient. 
Does that glorify God or does that glorify you? Glorifies you. Now, many of you would say, well, Mike, that's not me. I would never do that. But I disagree with you. I'll be straight with you. I disagree. I think many of you in this room find your joy in your obedience. Want to know why? It's because when we're talking and we have conversations and you're vulnerable with me and you share your struggles. You talk about how you're depressed or how you're so upset. Why? Because you automatically start to say a sin that you're struggling with and how you can't be joyful because of this sin in your life. And I ask you this. Are you joyful because of your obedience? Or do you obey God because you have joy? Second thing. If your joy is dependent on your obedience, then your joy will fluctuate constantly. Constantly, we're promised an everlasting joy that is unshakable. We are to be marked by joy, but how can we be marked by joy if we constantly are up and down every time we sin? Again, remember, we're sorrowful over, we're sorrowful over our sin, but that sorrow is immediately supplanted by joy in Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not always obedient. I make mistakes. I sin. Sometimes when I sin, I know it's a sin when I do it. But if my, if my joy is found in how obedient I am, I'm not going to be very joyful. Third thing, if joy in Christ, if joy in Christ does not fuel your obedience to him, then whatever is fueling your obedience will not last. If you're seeking to obey God because you're shame, you, you feel shame that the fact that you, when you don't obey, that won't last. If you're seeking to obey God because you're trying to earn anything, it won't last. If your motivation to obey is anything other than an overflow of joy in who God is and what he has done, it won't last. Remember, we're brokenhearted over our sin. But that sorrow quickly turns to joy in the light of the gospel, in the joy that it's that it, in the joy that it spurs us on to obedience. So we see it should be our Christians. It should be a life of joy. The second thing we need to see, and it's not as long, so don't worry, is the source of joy. Okay, Mike, that sounds great. I should be joyful. But here's the question: Where does this joy come from? Is it just this general mm, that I work within myself? That I just start to smile, right? That I just kind of like, hoo-hoo, and I, I walk out the door and I start skipping all the way home. Where does this joy come from? Right, we've established that the Christian avoids sin and lives a life that glorifies God because the joy that is within him has fueled him to do so. But where does this joy come from? Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, all throughout the Psalms, the phrase, the law of the Lord, is used to describe the entire word of God, not strictly the law portion of the first five books of the Bible. You with me? So this isn't necessarily just, you know, Genesis, you know, Levit Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, this is the entire scripture, all the whole word of God, right? So... The righteous person is delighted in the word of God. Where's the source of joy? It's found in scripture. Verse 2. Now, again, remind you, okay, the happy man or the happy, joyful, fulfilled Christian does not 
make a habit of living a life of sin. Rather, their joy is fat and be, rather they are obedient to God because they are fueled by their joy in him. And this joy comes from the fact, what? That their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, on the word of God, they meditate day and night. See, the source of our joy as Christians comes from God's word. So perhaps, let's just be real, perhaps the reason that you don't experience joy in your Christian life is because you're seeking to have your joy in other things or you just simply don't know God's word. Let's just be honest. We just don't know God's word. That's why when you come here on a Tuesday night, I am never going to preach to you by taking you know, popular songs and seeing the gospel message in those songs. Or popular movies and seeing how we can pull the gospel out of Finding Nemo. No, our joy is in the word of God. It's in the word of God. But I also think, here's the thing, it's more than just reading the Bible that gives you joy. Let's just be real, because some of you are like, look, I've tried reading the Bible, and I fall asleep halfway through. I don't feel joyful. You know, it's not like, you know, we, it's, it's more than, you know, it's not that I just read Psalm 1 and now I just have all this joy within me. And after reading Psalm 1, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go conquer the world for Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a little bit more than that. Rather, it's, it is the focus of God's word that brings everlasting joy. It's what is God's word about that brings everlasting joy. See, many of you are probably sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, Mike, I read my Bible every day. And I still struggle to find joy. Or I read my Bible, maybe not every day, but I read it pretty frequently. I still struggle with joy. I think what the book of James has to say here is very useful. James 4 verse 3, it says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. I think oftentimes the reason that we read the Bible and we are not filled with joy is because we don't read the Bible correctly. That's why. I think the reason that the word of God doesn't bring us joy is because you miss the point when you read it. You see, the focus of God's word is God. Spoiler alert. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God revealing to his creation who he is and what he has done and what he will do. And when you study God's word that way, then you will have joy. We focus on who God is and what he has done. We don't just go to the word just so that we can, you know, ace Bible trivia or memorize a bunch of scriptures. We go to the scriptures so that we can find the, the, the point of the scriptures. When you read the Bible, ask yourself, what does this tell me about who God is? If you don't walk away from script, if you, if you walk away from reading your Bible... And you, have no, and, and you have not once, through reading that passage, thought of who God is. You have missed it. You've missed it. You might as well have not read it. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about God. But not simply about who God is, but who God is for you. You see, the Israelites in Nehemiah's day were caught up with the holiness, the justice, and the righteousness of God. But they had lost sight of the mercy, the love, and the kindness of God. 
And perhaps the reason that you do not feel as joyful as you should in your walk with Christ is because you have an unbalanced view of who he is. You have an unbalanced view of who he is. You see, we must seek to know God in his fullness. In his fullness. And as God is revealed to us throughout the course of our lives, our joy in him will grow and it will grow and it will grow. Because I guarantee you that, Lord willing, when I'm 70 years old, I will know more about God than I do now. And because of that, I bet you I will have more joy in the Lord than I do right now. And this will happen in eternity when we are fully with him in eternity in heaven. Throughout the millennia, we will learn more and more and more and more about who God is. And we will have ever-increasing joy in heaven. Why? Because we will be ever more learning more about how great our God is. And this joy in him grows exponentially along with our knowledge of him. It will grow, our joy will grow in moment by moment and hour by hour. That God is loving. That God loves you. Like the same God that spins the galaxies in the palm of his hand knows how many hairs are on your head. That he is sovereign. That everything that happens in your life is controlled by a God who is all powerful and he is all loving. That he loves you. That God knows the worst things about you. He knows the things about you that no one else knows. But he loves you more than anyone else will ever love you. Man, that brings joy right there. But not only who he is, but what he has done. See, when we learn about this God and we, and we read about him in scripture, and we get to learn about how just and righteous and holy and loving and merciful and all-knowing and all-powerful that he is. And then when we think that he would send his son to die for us, that he would die for me, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed that this God that knows all of my sinfulness loves me unconditionally. That this God that knows the darkest blot of sin in your life loves you regardless. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at that. That while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. That he died for you while you were still a sinner. And from the beginning of time, God has known you by name, set you apart, and made a way for your sinfulness to not be counted against you. Man, if that doesn't bring joy to your heart, you're not a Christian. Psalm 32. Blessed. Same word. Happy. Satisfied, fulfilled, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, same word, blessed, joyful, happy, fulfilled is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In whose spirit there is no deceit. You hear that? That if you are in Christ, the darkest blot of sin is not counted against you. The biggest regret that you have in your mind right now, God covers by the blood of Jesus. Your sins are covered by Christ's death on the cross. And you are seen in the eyes of God as one who has no sin. Can you believe that? 
that this God who knows you fully has also declared you pure and righteous. You are a recipient of God's grace that declares you as righteous and redeemed. See, many of us, when we read the Bible or we even hear preaching, especially probably my preaching, we walk away thinking about how much of a failure we are. Which is true, but we must primarily walk away joyfully remembering that he is even a bigger savior. That as much as I am a sinner, he's an even bigger savior. And I may be really good at sinning, but he's really good at saving. You with me? That, and that's why we have joy, right? We're sorrowful over our sin, but we're reminded that that's why Christ came. That while I do regret what I have done, I don't weep for long over that because I remember that that's why Christ came. Christ came to give victory over this. See, this is how I can mourn over my sin but quickly have overwhelming joy because though my sins were as scarlet, he washed me white as snow. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a quote that says this. He goes, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And this is the gospel that we must preach to ourselves every single day. As Psalm 2, what, what does Psalm 1 say? It says that we meditate on this day and night. You never move on from the gospel. I hope you understand that. If you've heard me preach multiple times, you've hopefully heard the gospel in there every single time. Why? Because we never move on from it. We just grow deeper into it. We just grow deeper into it. This is the word of God that we meditate on day and night. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. I want to say that again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that. If God did not spare his own son for you, think about that. It, I just want you to just wrap your mind around that. If God did not spare his own son for you, what makes you think that he would send his son to die just so that he can look at you with disgust when you make a mistake? It doesn't make sense. Do you understand what Christ's death on the cross and, re and, and resurrection from the dead does for you? Is that when you fall short, you don't have to wallow in your self-pity because that's why Jesus came. Now, some people will hear this, the non-Christian will hear this, and they'll use it as a license for sin. But the Christian hears this, and it fills them with joy. And that joy fuels them to want to be obedient to this Savior that has died for them. Do you think that Jesus would go through what he went through, bearing the wrath of God for all of sin, so that when you sin, he could look at you and be like, hmm. No. If that is how you think God views you when you sin, you have far too low of a view of what Jesus did for you. Or you have way too big of a view of what sin does. 
Jesus' blood makes you righteous in the eyes of God. It doesn't make salvation possible. Scripture says that he has accomplished salvation. He doesn't make it to where it's possible for you to be saved. He has saved you. Done. Boom. End of story. God sent his son not so that you would be motivated to try harder, but so that he could lavish grace upon you and more grace on you and more grace on you. And scripture says what? That his grace is new every morning. You stumble and you declare. Sorry, as you stumble, he declares you righteous, even though you have no righteousness of your own. If you're saved, you hear this, you're reminded of this, and you desire to be obedient. But now you're obedient out of joy rather than out of fear. You with me? Because fear will motivate you to a point. I'll give you an example. If you and I are chased by a bear, I don't have to be faster than the bear. I have to be faster than you. If I'm faster than you, then I'm fine. Now, if I was dying of starvation, and there was a stake at the end of a hallway, and it's just me and the bear, now i got to be faster than that bear. Why? Because, I have, because that stake is going to bring me joy, right? That's a terrible illustration. But here's what I'm trying to say. Is that fear will motivate you to a point, but joy will take you further than you thought you could go. Find joy in who Christ is. And if you struggle, you need to do this. This gospel that I just preached to you, remind yourself of it every single day. Every day. Wake up. Preach the gospel to yourself. Go to lunch. Preach the gospel to yourself. Before you go to bed, preach the gospel to yourself. You see, if this does not give you joy, what I just shared with you, you are not a Christian. Think about this. Because we know who God is, we know that he does not lie. And we know that he, th- that we know that he does not lie, and we know that the truths of Scripture fill us with joy. Because the God who cannot lie has declared that you are his chosen possession. Paul Washer has a quote. I heard it today, and I loved it. It says this, even in your glorified body in heaven, you will not be more right than you are with God right now. I'll say that again. Even in your glorified body in heaven, you will not be more right with him than you are right now. Man, that is good news. That is good news. And guys, you have to believe this. I don't know what else to say. You have to believe this. Now, some of you may say, yeah, I believe it. But no, you don't. Because every mistake you make, you dwell on it for months. That is not why Christ came. That is not the abundant life that is promised in John 10.10. That is not the joyful life of a Christian explained here in Psalm 1. Do you truly, really believe that what Christ did on the cross for you is enough? You have to believe this. You have to walk in this. Because until you do, the joy of the Lord that is promised to you as a Christian will always seem like a fantasy. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. 
and all that he does, he prospers. You see, Psalm 1 tells us that the Christian meditates on these truths day and night. And because of this, it brings him joy. And this joy is what fuels the Christian to avoid sin and to bring forth fruit. The Christian's joy is rooted in the unchanging truth of who God is and what he has done. Because here's the deal. God doesn't change. This truth that I just proclaimed to you, it was true 2,000 years ago. It is true now. It will be true in a million years. It doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when my faith and my joy is rooted in that, then my joy does not change. Now, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Every once in a while, I get caught up and I lose sight of the gospel. But that's okay. That's what the gospel is there for. When you plant yourself in the everlasting streams of God's grace, as we see in Psalm 1, there is joy to produce fruit in you and to keep you from withering. It's not enough to simply declare these things to be true. you got to believe it. It has to consume your thinking. Allow the truth of God's word to be the filter through which you see everything else. And I guarantee you, That you will have joy that this world cannot shake and Satan and every demon of hell cannot destroy. I promise you. Promise you. And the last thing, which is significantly shortest, okay. We see a life of joy. We see the source of joy. Now we see the absence of joy. Verse 4. The wicked are not so but are like chafe that the wind drives away. Notice the contrast here. The joyful Christian is like a tree that is rooted by a stream of water, but the wicked or the non-Christian is like chafe that is blown and tossed by the wind. There's no foundation. There's no root. There is no grounding in anything. What makes it happy, what makes it joyful, it's here today, gone tomorrow. There's nothing consistent for the non-Christian to base their joy in. Everything that a non-Christian can base their joy in. And this is, even if you disagree with me, even if you're not a Christian and you're in this room and you're like, yo, you're full of garbage. Well, let me ask you this. What are you placing your hope and your faith in? What are you finding your joy in that will be here forever? Nothing. 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 Everything a non-Christian can base their joy in is temporary. And it changes constantly. This is why Psalm says they're like chafe that is so easily blown by the wind. And here's the thing. When as Christians, when we allow our joy to fluctuate like this, what are we proclaiming to the world? We're proclaiming to the world that what we have our joy in is no different than what they place their joy in. It's a big deal. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, here's the question. Why will the wicked not be able to stand in judgment? When they stand before God and they are judged, how is it that they will not be able to stand? It is because they will testify against themselves that their joy was not in Christ, but in the things of this world. When they stand before God, they won't have to have somebody come in and they, they, God, you won't have to have somebody come in and, you know, testify against them. Their life will testify against themselves that their joy was in everything but Christ. Everything but Christ. Look, the greatest testimony for what your faith is in is what you find your joy in. If, you, if your faith is in your obedience, then that is what's going to give you joy. 
If your faith is in your performance, then that is what's going to give you joy. If your faith is in your family or your friends or your relationships or how much money you make or how much school or how well you do in school, if your faith is in that, then that is what your joy will be in. But if your faith is in the finished work of Christ on the cross and who God and how God has made a way for you to have a relationship forever. If your faith is in what Christ has done and who Christ is, then that is where you will find your joy. It's simple. That's where you'll find your joy. So let me ask you a question. What, where do you find your joy? What is your faith in? Do you find joy in the fact that you're obedient? Do you find joy in the fact that you're a good Christian? Maybe you're struggling to obey. We all do. Let's just be real. Maybe you've been battling an addiction for a long time. And you're struggling and you're struggling and you're struggling. Let me ask you a question. What's fueling your fight against sin? Is it, I just don't want to feel like this anymore? Or is it that you're so joyful and you're so happy in what Christ has done for you that you're willing to do anything? I'm telling you, allow your obedience to be fueled by your joy. Do not allow your joy to be fueled by your obedience. Because you will put a burden on yourself that you will not be able to carry. You'll put a burden on yourself that you'll never be able to overcome. And here's the deal. If you're in this room and you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, there is no joy like the joy that Christ gives. To know that your sins are forgiven, that the shame of the past is gone. What does Scripture say is that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what we preach to ourselves every day. I don't just preach the gospel to non-Christians. I preach the gospel to myself more than anyone else. I encourage you to do that as you leave this place. That makes sense? You guys with me? All right. Thank you. I haven't preached in a while, so I went a little long. Deal with it. Okay? Just kidding. Okay, hey, I'm going to pray. Um, it's supposed to be like beautiful weather outside, so we're going to go to Chick-fil-A. Um, if you want, we like to go through the drive through at Chick-fil-A, circle our cars up in the Teen Challenge parking lot, and we just have a dandy old time. Uh, so we encourage you to come on out and hang out. So, all right, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Father, for the joy that we can have in who you are and what you've done. And God, I ask that as we leave this place, Father, that we wouldn't find our joy in our performance, but Father, we find our joy in you and what in your finished work on the cross. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for everyone in this room. And God, I just ask that everything we say and do would bring honor and glory to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, guys, love, peace, and chicken grease. I'll see you later.